Today, we are going to wrap up a series that I thought ended two weeks ago. But sometimes, when you map out your strategy for preaching through a book, you get to the point in the book where that sermon comes up and you realize it actually belongs in the previous series. So I'm going to back up and I'm going to add it sort of as an appendix to what we covered two weeks ago. In case you forgot, we are going through a series that was basically about the fact that Christ is our substitute. The whole book of Hebrews talks about the supremacy of Christ in every way, and we had talked about Him being our substitute. And as a result, we were able to to look to the Word of God to see how, on account of what He has done, on account of His substitution, that we can have a perfect conscience, and that we have a perfect mediator and that He is the perfect substitute. And now, today, we are going to take a look at what it means to be the perfect church. It really fits in to tie together that whole concept because it is through His substitutionary atonement, through His sacrifice, that we have the opportunity to be a perfect church. Not just a good one, not just a healthy one, but a perfect one. Now that's an ambition. Somebody says, do you tell me about your church? And you say, it's perfect. They say, what do you mean? I've never heard of a perfect church. And you could say, well, it's not perfect the way you're thinking. Perfect in the sense of what the Bible says, which is complete. Perfect in the sense of being satisfied. Perfect in the sense of seeing that everything that needs to be done is done and has been done once and for all in Christ. I believe that is what will cause this to be a church that people want to attend because they will come hearing what they need to hear. Now, not everybody does. In fact, not everybody attends Lord's Day services and comes away thinking, that's what I needed to hear. Unfortunately, some people think that that's a badge of honor. It wasn't too long ago that I was speaking to a good friend of mine who had invited me to be away with him at his other house for the weekend. And as we were talking about church, he was relaying to me how somebody had asked him what church he went to, and he told them, and he asked them what church they went to, and they told him, and he asked him what uh, this other person thought of his church, and, and he said, you know, it's, it's fine. I go there, and I, I feel good after I've gone. And, and my friend, unfortunately, because of where he's at right now and is thinking about church, he said, well, that, that means it's probably not a good church. And the guy said, why? He said, well, the church I go to, I don't, I, don't come away feeling, I don't come away feeling good. I come away feeling bad. And he was trying to explain to this guy and sort of to me that he, the church must be good because he goes away feeling bad, feeling bad about himself, bad about his sin, bad about the things he's done that week. And, and somehow through feeling bad, it's going to make him want to do better. Well, it's quite possible that if you go away from a church feeling good, that it's not a good church, but if you go away feeling bad, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good church. If you go away feeling bad, meaning feeling guilty or feeling shameful or feeling like you're burdened under the weight of sin or the weight of expectations of this long to-do list that came out as application in the sermon, then I'm afraid that you might actually be missing something very precious in the gathering And that is that the gathering is intended to be a time to build you up and encourage you and cause you to leave feeling good, not because it's all about you, but because it's all about Christ, which solves all the problems about you. A commentator relayed this story about a person who went through a similar experience in her church. She says this, quote, 
In the badness of my childhood depression, I was teeth-rattlingly lonely. The Christianity of my childhood offered me no way out of my unhappiness. Rather, with its emphasis on sin, on the thorough badness of all people, and Jesus' death for it, it gave me an explanation for why I ought to be depressed. Sin was what religion was about. If you had asked me in the fourth grade, why was Jesus born, I would have been glad to answer it was because of sin. If you had pushed me about what it took to get our sins forgiven, I would have told you we have to repent of our sins. If you had pushed me a little further to ask, and what does it mean to repent, I would have said, quote, to feel really, really bad about what a sinful person you are. Now, I would argue that there are some people who don't go to church anymore because the only thing they ever got out of it was a lesson on what a bad person they were, and the only expectation that they had was that they go away from here feeling really, really bad about how bad you are. And so I would like to begin the sermon this morning by asking the Lord that may He be so kind to us that such a thing never be said of anybody who attends our church with any regularity. Because I do believe that the elders of any Christ-centered church must foster a culture where this individual would be comforted by the death of Christ, not depressed by the death of Christ. I think a timely illustration may be helpful here. At the present time, Great Britain and the Commonwealth nations are mourning the death of their sovereign. Now, she ruled for 70 years, and now she's dead, and her rule has ended, and her title and her wealth and her duties have been passed on to another. But in bold contrast to that, the church gathers today to celebrate the death of our sovereign because it was by that death that we were made part of the royal family of heaven. And his death is not the end of his reign. In fact, his reign is uninterrupted and undiminished. His kingdom is forever, and we assemble ourselves together to confess that and to remind ourselves of that. And so we assemble to worship, and worship happens when you know you are forgiven. We assemble to worship, and worship happens when you know that you're forgiven. Worship is about Christ. He rules forever. He was dead, but is alive. Was able to transfer to us his infinite wealth, shared with his children. He is the center, the focus. And this is a Christ church. The earliest churches were named Christ church because Christ was the center of the church, what he had done. And so, this morning, I want to show you that there are three objectives in becoming a perfect church, becoming a church that would be a Christ church, a Christ-centered church. And it is the responsibility of those who minister in that church to do three particular things for you on a regular basis. Uh, these are their objectives, and that is, number one, to remind you Number two, to rescue you. And number three, to reassure you. Three objectives, to remind you, to rescue you, and to reassure you. 
The first one comes in verses 19 through 25. Please listen carefully as I read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the Word of God. Therefore, brothers, and you could say brothers and sisters, therefore family, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. (laughs) You see, the first thing that we do is we remind one another. And the first part is all about Christ. Look what it says in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, and you could say brothers and sisters. Uh, This is a word that was meant to cover all of the siblings, all of those in the family, He says to us in the family of God that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this is astonishing, remember, the very fact that we are able to enter in not only to the physical holy places, but in this case, the spiritual ones. Remember, the physical ones weren't even accessible to people back in those days, but here we learn that the very spiritual ones are, the heavenly ones are. The holy places, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus. You enter because of Him. He is the one who has the credentials. If you were to try to access a building that was secured, you would not be able to get in there unless you had access, unless you had credentials, unless you had permission. There are people here in our church who work in certain industries where the work they do is highly classified. In fact, some of it's very secret. And if I were to be invited to come and join them at their workplace, I would not be permitted merely to open up the door and and walk inside and just meet them as if it were a fast food restaurant. I would have to get layers of clearance. In fact, quite likely, I would not even be able to go and see them where they actually work because I don't have the inherent authority. I don't have the clearance. I, I haven't done what's necessary in order to be accepted there. Please, apply that to the work of Christ. What we're seeing here is that Christ, with the ultimate, eternal, heavenly, infinite credentials, says to you and I, as His family members, you may come in with me, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything I've done, everything I've secured. And you do this by a new and a living way, verse 20, that He opened for us through the curtain. It's the same word used for veil. We saw that back in chapter 6, verse 19, back in chapter 9, verse 3. But the uh, clarification here is that the veil is representative of His flesh. Remember, it says His body on the cross was torn for you and I. That veil was torn top to bottom. It was torn in such a way as to, to expose the reality that now through that veil you are able to see into the very holy of holies, Christ Himself laying down that flesh, tore apart that boundary between us and the very holy of holies. It doesn't make it any less holy. It doesn't make you any less sinful. 
But what it says is that you are now clothed with a righteousness not your own and given access to a place that you could otherwise never be in. And he has done that through his flesh, through his death. And since we have this great high priest, Jesus Christ, over the house of God. Please notice that word house of God, that phrase. It says that we are part of that house. We are part of that family. Uh, We were purchased all together to belong to him. He purchased your opportunity to share it with others. And since you're family, you've got access. You're family. You treat family differently, don't you? I mean, as much as you love other people, as much as you love your friends, there's still nothing like family. Family gets a special grace. Family gets special privileges. Family gets special tolerance. In fact, family is uh, something you get defensive about, isn't it? You ever notice, like, uh, someone says something that's not very nice about your family member, you take personal offense to that, don't you? Even though you just said the very same thing about them, it's different. It's like, I can talk about them that way because I'm family. You can't talk about them that way. Imagine what it's like to be a part of the family of, of God. God himself says, yeah, I know that guy's wretch, but he's family. I purchased him. I've clothed him in my righteousness, belongs to me. He belongs to me. And so therefore, what he has done, we can talk about what we must do. Look at verse 22. What do we do in response to that? First of all, we draw near. It says, draw near with a true heart. This comes back from Jeremiah 31. You've been given a new heart, a a true heart, a clean heart, a pure heart. It's the idea that the conscience you've been desperate for, the conscience that is no longer troubled, has finally been accomplished not because of a work you have done, but because of something Christ did. And therefore, you come to him, not not in shyness, not in fear, not timidly, but in full assurance. Uh, This idea of assurance of faith, relatively rare in the New Testament, just three other places it's used, but it's the ultimate faith. It's the faith that is so absolutely rooted that it can't be shaken. And I'd like you to know something about this faith. It's not a faith that you develop the way you work out and develop a muscle. I want to be very clear about this today. It's a very, very important part. The faith spoken of here, the faith of assurance, is not a faith that you have because you've developed it. The strength of the faith and the depth of the assurance doesn't come from the one who has the faith comes from the one in whom the faith is placed. It doesn't come from the one who has the faith. It comes from the one in whom the faith is placed. So because your faith is ultimately in Christ, that's where the assurance comes from. Because of who he is, what he has done, what he can accomplish, what he can do and has done for us. So please, if you have been in a situation where people have told you that you just don't have enough faith and you've got to work harder, pray harder, if you believed enough, if you really had faith, God would do this or that or this guy would be healed or that situation would go away. I believe, unfortunately, you've been poorly instructed about faith. The strength of one's faith doesn't come from how much of it you think you have or can develop. The strength of your faith comes from where your faith is placed. And so what I would recommend to anybody who is wrestling with that is to keep wrestling. Keep wrestling by continually directing yourself back to Christ. Be reminded about him. Once again, the reason why he's the focus of our services every week is because if nothing else, we want you to come away from here with your eyes redirected 
to the very source of your assurance. And that's where the power lies. He carries on to say, not only that, but with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what we do is we come with this sort of sense of realizing that in the Old Testament imagery, we have been sanctified. The word sanctified meant to set it apart. And so what the priest would do is he would take the blood from the offering and he would sprinkle it. He would use a hyssop branch and he would, he would sprinkle it. And that item, which was a pretty normal item, whatever it was, was now sanctified, set apart, made special. And in this case, here's the wonderful language, your, your conscience that bothers you so much and your flesh that fails you so often has been sprinkled and sanctified and set apart. It's been used for him. So if you're wrestling with the fact that your conscience today is guilty, and if you're wrestling with the fact that this last week has not exactly been a good indication of your willingness to follow the Lord and do His will, then I have wonderful news for you today. I have wonderful news for you. You are sprinkled with the very blood of Christ, it says, that your conscience and your flesh, your bodies, washed, purified, in His eyes clean. And He says, I have now not only set you apart, but I have indwelt you with the Holy Spirit so that by my grace, you may be able to live lives worthy of the gospel. You may be able to do those good works that I ordained for you before the foundation of the world. You may be able to do everything that we read about earlier in James 2. That, that faith that you have is going to be manifest in the good works that you do. But the good works that can begin with repentance, the good works that carry on to the fruit of the Spirit, are not done in order to secure salvation, but as an indication of salvation. So you essentially come into a place like this where you are reminded, ah, oh, I've been sprinkled. I've been set apart. I do belong to him. Remind me of that. Somebody remind me that I'm sprinkled. You can't see it necessarily on yourself. You ever been in a situation where you've spilled something in an area where you can't see it and somebody has kindly pointed that out to you? You're about to go out somewhere and your spouse says to you, you know, I think you need to go change. And you're like, what? I worked so hard on this outfit. And it's like, well, the outfit matches, but you've got this great big stain, like right there. And you look down, and you never noticed. Now, that's kind of a trivial example, but in some ways, that's what we need to do with each other. You're not just sprinkled, though, with like a little dab of blood. Like, you're covered in blood. Now the imagery really gets weird, I know. But you are covered, as it were. Covered in the very blood of Christ, which means that when the God the Father looks at you, he sees the price that his son paid. You're marked with his blood. His blood is on you. It's as if he was the one who jumped on the grenade and he saved the entire platoon and you're sprinkled with his blood. You're the one covered, as it were, with the evidence of his sacrifice. Brother and sister in Christ, I want that to be an encouragement to you this morning. You come in here as one bearing evidence that someone else took the punishment for me. <laughs> and I don't wear that as a badge of honor. At the risk of go, taking this a little bit too far, but imagine, imagine that illustration. Somebody really did have on them the evidence of the death that somebody voluntarily died to save them. And imagine what you would think if that person walked around proud of that as if they had done something. What, 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 a, what a dishonor to that person's legacy. What a dishonor to that person's name who had given up everything to save you. 
But, but in some ways, that can happen, even with a Christian. They go walking around acting like somehow they are the way they are because they just decided to get their act together, not realizing that they've been sprinkled with the sacrificial blood of Christ, sanctified and set apart. And so when they look at themselves, they, they ought to see what He has done. And what that will do is also encourage you in times where you know you fall short. So we look to what God has done. We look to what we do. And also, in terms of this reminder... We also need to look at verse 23 through 25 because he says there's more. Verse 23 says, Therefore, as a result of this, continuing on with kind of our part in this, let us hold fast the confession. It's a word that comes from two Greek words, homo and logos. Homo meaning same, logos meaning word, same word. Let us hold fast to what we confess. In the old days, churches were never started without a confession of faith. It's not like today, where you can just start a church because you feel like it. In the old days, churches were started because it was agreed that this would be a right place at the right time with the right man to be the pastor, the right training involved, the right building was secured. And one of the first things that you did when you formed as a church was that you chose a confession might be the Westminster Confession of Faith. It might be the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It might be the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Whatever it was, you chose the one that best described what you believed as a body, as a church, as a family. And, and these confessions, if you were in the seminar a few weeks ago, you might remember, were not exactly thrown together over a weekend. They took years to be put together. They were put together by hundreds of well-trained theologians and scholars, and, and, and much attention to every detail was given so that when these churches formed, they had a place to go to answer the questions they had and to remind themselves of what they confess. By the way, you also had a church covenant usually, which was how you brought people into membership. But in this particular case, I want to draw your attention to it because he says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now, while we are not talking here about a confession of faith written by men, we're talking about a confession of faith in the finished work of Christ. That's what you gather to confess and remind each other of. It's the same word we share. You know, I would much rather have that in common with you than anything else. Of all of you sitting in the room today, there's a lot of different ways we could have something in common. Uh, we might like the same hobbies. We might uh, like the same kind of food. Uh, there might be other ways in which uh, music, you know, ways that we can get along with each other, and there's a natural connection. But you know what the greatest connection is? The greatest connection is that you and I both believe the same thing about what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what he did for us. Because that transcends every culture, every preference, every unique affinity. In fact, it's even global. You go anywhere, and as long as you're confessing that thing, that is what binds and holds one together, and that is what we need to be reminding each other of. Now, first of all, we need to remind each other of it. We need to profess it, but we also need to hold fast to it. Look what it says in verse 24. Not only do we hold on to it, but also it says, and let us consider essentially how to use it how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
About a year ago, I did a, a special message just on these two verses, and so I'm not going to teach it the same way today. I just did a sort of a deep dive into that when we were talking about the foundations of the church. But here, in this context, in terms of what is being taught by the author of Hebrews, it fits in with the idea of the confession. Not only are we holding fast to it, but we're also trying to stir one another up in a good way. Uh, please look at that word, stir up. I love this. It's only used here and in Acts 15, 39. And in Acts 15, the context is the great division that happened between Paul and Barnabas, the great stirring up, the, the fight that they had. And, and, and this is amazing, isn't it? Stir up sounds almost like a good thing. Like, I'm, I'm motivating you. I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm saying, hey, you can do it. The word stir up, it was a word that actually meant to provoke. I mean, they, they, it's a cause of fight. They were angry. So, so here, I'm giving you permission now to, I can, to provoke one another. You think that is not, I've never been told that in church. Yeah, like you need to go and provoke one another. Now there's a context, and there's a limit, and there's a focus. What's the context? The context is within the local church. What's the focus? The focus is to do good deeds, right? And here, specifically, the emphasis is that we gather together on a Lord's Day for the purpose of stirring one another up, provoking one another to do these good deeds for a reason. Because the reason is that we love one another. It's not just good works for the sake of good works, because you can get together with a lot of clubs anytime during the week, and they can encourage you to do good deeds, go out there and pick up trash and clean up the beach and, you know, save animals. There's lots of things that people can get you to try to do, but it's not out of Christian love. We stir one another up and provoke one another to love and good deeds. So you haven't really been to a truly healthy church unless that is bound together in the love that is encouraging one another to do the good works that God has ordained for us to do. That is why you can't neglect to come together. Verse 25 says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect this act of worship that deepens your assurance. Uh, don't neglect the, the coming together as believers, as it says here in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, this idea that you are to assemble in person for the purpose of giving and receiving. You see, the ministry of the Word is not just what's going on right now. It's not just with the pastor, the preacher. I, I sincerely hope that every one of you has been ministered to today by somebody else sitting near you. And that you have made it a, a, an ambition on your part to minister to somebody around you, especially if you don't know them very well. Uh, we might have some visitors here today, people that are guests. And, and I would hope that those of you who are regularly here would take a moment to step outside of kind of your comfort zone and, and walk over and greet them. Introduce yourself. Although the way this church works out, you might find out they've been here for like three months and you've just never seen them. So that's okay, don't be offended. And if you're visiting here and, and you don't mind being known, I understand. Some people want to visit, they want to get in, they want to get out. Okay, they're like, they're like the special ops of, of church visitors. You know, they're going to come in right at the end and they're going to sit somewhere strategically. They've got all the exits identified. And the minute they sense that, that, that you know, this is ending and all these people close their eyes, boom, they're gone. You say amen and like poof, they vanish. And you're like, what in the world? I understand that. I don't like it when church members are like that. We're not going to embarrass you, but I would love for you to feel ministered to here. 
I'd love for everybody here to say, you know, I came to church, and yes, we sung, which was wonderful, and yes, I heard a sermon, which was wonderful, but you know what? When we were singing, we were building one another up with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I, I, was, I was listening to this person over here singing, and it ministered to my soul, and then afterwards, we didn't just have a really shallow conversation. They genuinely asked me how I was doing, and how can I pray for you? And when they said, I'll pray for you, I believe them. In fact, they stopped right there, and they just prayed for me. And I came away with this sense that I'm, I'm not alone, that this is a family, that people do love me here, and that this is not just a spectator event where people come and go. I believe that is what the author is saying. And why would that be important? Well, consider the context. Remember, this is during a time of intense persecution. These believers, likely Jewish believers, possibly living in Rome, were experiencing intense persecution because of their faith, and they were tempted not to assemble together. And, and one of the things we have to remember is that the assembling together exposed you. The assembling together exposed you. I'm going to say something that you're not expecting. I don't think that the assembling together here in this context at this time specifically relates to our context of coming to church. Okay? Here's why. In those days, the, 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 the Christians would gather almost every day. And it was usually very early in the morning or very late at night. And the reason was that many of the people in the church were slaves. And you didn't just have the opportunity to, you know, work from home and sort of like go wherever you wanted to go whenever you wanted to. You had to work. So you couldn't go except very early in the morning or very late at night. And it was almost daily. And what happened was when you assembled together, it's the word we get synagogue from, when you synagogue together, when you, when you came together like that, you were easily marked out. You were identified. And in a time where persecution was rampant, it was really tempting to skip out on the Christian gathering because we're already targets. And like, honestly, the last thing I want to do right now after a, a day's work is like go and join up with the rest of the Christians and, and sing and just be mocked and have people throw stones at us and, and have people steal my stuff while I'm gone and, and, and be made fun of and mocked and ridiculed. I, I just don't want to do that. Now, that's not what it is in church today. You are not stoned or mocked or ridiculed when you come to church. It's never been easier to come to church. If you're missing church on a regular basis in our country at this time, it, it, there's absolutely no reason for it except you've made the choice not to be here and you've prioritized something else. So that's, I almost feel like, Pastors shouldn't use this. We don't deserve this verse. Pastors don't deserve to have this verse to use on us today because we don't qualify. We don't qualify. If we were being persecuted, maybe then I'd be justified in using it. But, but right now, there's just no excuse. We don't need this in the same way. They're invited to come out in the face of inevitable persecution. So when you're there, believe me, you need to be loved. You need to be built up. You need to be reminded of what you believe. You need to have your eyes focused back on Christ. You need to be told, keep doing the good works even though it's costing you everything. Keep doing the things that you've been called to do. Don't neglect coming together the way that some of these people have, some of these people who claim to be Christians, but you know what, the persecution's too much, and they're like, I can't do it, I don't want to go. The word habit here is a word that's translated ethos or culture. It's become your culture. 
It's become your ethos. It's become just how you are. You just, in general, don't come to church. Like, if you're here, it's the exception, not the rule. It's if there's nothing else. In those days, it was actually a legitimate concern. In those days, he's still saying, come be a part of it, but not because we're trying to persuade you. Like, how can I make church better than soccer? How can I make church better than camping? How can I make church better than going to the beach? How can I make church better than all the other things that we can do? Some pastors are like that. They drive themselves crazy trying to make church cool enough for you guys to come. Here's here's the thing. It's never going to be cool. It's just not. Like, we're not cool. We're not. I'm not. Dave's cool. But it's just not. It's not cool. It's not a competitor. It's just not. And I'm not going to try to make it one. I'm so tired of like hearing this, especially from a lot, I'm just say it, like other pastors in North County, like, oh, well, if you just did this and just did that and have a Saturday night service instead and make sure that everyone can get their choice of music and da da da. No. Like, I would rather have a small church of people who are so totally committed to what we're doing here than than tweak it to make a bunch of people want to come. All right? Okay? Okay, good. Some of you are like, oh, man, I was really hoping we would, you know, have something cool next week. Nope. Same old not cool. so not cool, like, I'm not even going to finish this sermon. <laughs> like, literally in point one still. All right. Look back at the text. Don't make this your habit. Don't make it your habit. But, if you're an underliner, underline this. It's the strongest contrast in the original language. Strongest possible way of contrasting something. He says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We, we serve the rest of the family this way. We, we are a place where people are built up and encouraged. The word encouraged, two Greek words to call alongside. I just want to come alongside you. I don't have an answer to your problems, but I want you to know that I'm here. Like, I'm, just, I'm here beside you. Like, you're going through a really horrible time, and it, it stinks. Like, it's truly bad. Let's go look at some of those lament psalms. Like, let's pray through this in, in, in a God-inspired way of complaining. It's, it's inspired complaining. But it's, but, it's, but it's biblical, and it shifts our attention eventually back to Him. But the calling alongside is simply that. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that every week we gather together here with other people who will come alongside us in the midst of the messes that we're in, in our families, in our marriages, in our lives, and be able to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm beside you on this. So that's what it means to call alongside, to encourage. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the, the word day should be a capital in your um, in your Bible, capital D, day. This is like the last day. The last day is coming. And we need to be encouraging one another because now you have access to God. Under the rules of the previous system, you didn't go to the temple to worship. You went to the temple to deal with your sin and a priest took care of that for you. That might sound a little bit different than you're used to hearing it, but let me say it again. 
in the old system, you didn't go to the temple to worship. You went to the temple so that somebody else could deal with your sin. It was the place where you did your spiritual banking. It was a place where you as a family couldn't even go. Why? Because the Gentiles that are in your home, or if you were a Gentile, guess what? You go here and no further. You stop right here. The gate goes down. You can't go any further. Well, the Jewish family, they continue on, husband, wife, until you get to this other gate, and they're like, hey, all the wives, you can't come in here. Family separated. Wife, outside there, in front of the Gentiles, behind the men. What's going on? Where are the sacrifices? Is my sin being atoned for? Don't know. Can't see it. No idea. Men go next, and they go up to a certain point, and then there's another barricade. You can't go further than this unless you're a priest. Well, that wipes out 11 out of the 12 tribes of men, right? So they're all standing there. So now you've got only the, the Levites, they're allowed to go in, and only if they're on duty, and only they can go so far, because then there's another barricade comes down, and they say, unless you are part of the functioning priesthood, you go so far, and then eventually, as you know, one day a week, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. How intimate does that feel? So again, when we say that, that, that this nation was a nation that worshipped God, yes, they worshipped God, but they worshipped God much more in their festivals than in their going to the temple. Because going to the temple was a place where the spiritual transactions were completed. What the author to the Hebrews is saying is, isn't it glorious, Hebrews, that that whole system is gone now, and you're welcomed in as a family Gentiles and Jews, women and men, broken people who are not allowed to go onto the Temple Mount because you had some oozing sore or you had some leprosy or some other skin condition or because you were unclean in some other way. You weren't allowed to go. Church says all are welcome. Every tribe, tongue, nation, gender, condition, welcome. And so he says the deepest atonement then that was made only once a year by this one person for the nation has now been made once and for all. It's been made through Christ. You're no longer on the outside. You're no longer part of the crowds, part of this throng that came to watch as much of the performance as they were allowed to. You're now not those who just sing of their hope in the coming of the Messiah. You're the ones who sing in the hope that Messiah has already come and will come again. You know, the work is finished. That's why there's no altar here. That's why there's no altar here. Some churches, there's, a, there's an altar. And, and the word altar is meant to signify a place where something was sacrificed. And the reason why, some of your friends who are in other religions or maybe other denominations even, there's an altar there is because they think something's going on in terms of this ongoing sacrifice of Christ. It has to keep happening. They come down and it's from there that grace is infused like an injection, like an inoculation. You have to come here. You have to come to this church. You have to come under this priest because I'm the one who is the dispenser of grace. What the author here is saying is all that's gone because there is no dispensing or, or infusing of grace. It's been imputed. It's been given to you once and for all when you came to Christ. There are three objectives that a perfect church should have. There are three goals that any elder or leader should have. And when we assemble, it is to remind you 
It is to rescue you, and it is to reassure you. And we will cover the next two next week. (laughs) Father in heaven, we come before you with hearts overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ. I am so grateful that I am not a priest. I am so grateful that I don't have some fancy robe and ring and hat and have to stand up here in front of this congregation and say a bunch of stuff in Latin and then make them think that I'm infusing grace into them when they come up. Thank you that I'm not a Jewish priest with robes on where I have to accept animals from some head of household and kill it and sprinkle its blood on the person and throw it on the altar and then burn up the animal. Thank you that I get to be a pastor, an elder, in a New Testament church where all I have to do is repeat what you have said in your word and point our eyes to you and to your finished work. May that be what binds this church together. May it be what causes us to want to be here more than anything else, not out of drudgery and duty and and bare obedience, but because we actually realize that as needy people, your body encourages itself. And may we be those who even today, even 10 minutes from now when this service ends, intentionally be that encouragement to someone who's close by us. May you work that good work in us that proves our faith for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.